Chapter 19 of The Directory of the Devout Life by F. B. Meyer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter 19 The Royalty of Our Life. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. It is inevitable, as the Lord has clearly implied in the preceding words, that, so long as we are in the world, we must come in contact with its evil. There will be inconsistencies that we shall be tempted to judge, motes and beams that we shall have to extract, and swine or dogs with which we must reckon. It cannot be child's play for any of us. If we are to keep ourselves unspotted from the world, and unsubdued by the inward power of sin, we must have resort to the weapon of all prayer. Therefore it is that our Lord turns from the exhortations of the preceding paragraph to these injunctions concerning prayer. It was as though he said, You will never succeed in being or doing what I say unless your lives are full of persistent and prevailing prayer. It may be that there is an even wider range of thought. As we review this matchless conception of a holy life, so far removed above anything which the mind of man has conceived, as we recall the beatitudes of the opening sentences, the searching fulfillment of the older law, the warnings against an impaired intention of the soul, against ostentation, covetousness, and care, our hearts may well faint within us at the immensity of the task before us. And as we think of his demand, that we should be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, that we should be filled with a divine love, that we should always treat others as we wish that they should treat us, we might again cry, Who is sufficient for all these things? To answer this double attitude, which is indeed one, the Lord says, Pray. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Pray. We have here two words which prove that the entire paragraph is closely jointed together, if ye then, being evil, all things, therefore, whatsoever. The exhortation to prayer is followed by an analogy, and this by an injunction. The Exhortation to Prayer 1. Ask Our Master knew well how much it would mean to us that His own lips should utter that word, but He did not hesitate to speak it. As Son of God, he knew all that asking would do for us, and, as Son of Man, he had often proved the value of the practice he enjoined. Ask, he said. It was as though he loved to dwell on the word. See, he repeats it, not once or twice, but four times over. Everyone that asketh, receiveth. If his son shall ask for a loaf, if he shall ask for a fish, good things to them that ask. It seems as though our Lord would do away with the formality and stateliness that attach to too many of our prayers, and teach us that praying is just asking, and asking as a child would ask. Men shrink from asking for a favor from their fellows, but a little child has no reserve with its father. In the simplest and most artless manner it asks for what it wants, and with no doubt at all that the Father will gladly hasten to respond. Thus, says our Lord, ask God for what you want, as long ago you asked your parents, and do it without vehemence or self-consciousness. 
Every one that asketh, receiveth. Emerson tells us that he preached his first sermon from these words, having obtained his divisions from the blunt saying of a field laborer, who said that men are always praying, and always being heard. His divisions, therefore, were as follows. One, men are always praying. Two, all their prayers are granted. Three, we must beware, then, what we ask. The second is the doubtful one. Is it true that all our prayers are granted? Not surely in the way that we ask, as we shall see, but in some way. There is no prayer that we utter which is based on a real need, nothing that we sincerely ask for which is not answered somehow, some when, somewhere. With too many of us, alas, there is a failure in the art of receptiveness. We ask, but we fail to take. We send out that letter in the outgoing mail, but never go near the office to ask if there is a reply addressed to us. We send an ocean cablegram asking for consignment of heavenly treasure, but never go down to the wharf to ascertain if it has arrived, and to claim it. 2. Seek. You ask for a gift. You seek for something you have lost, or for some valuable treasure. The miner gropes along the corridors of the mine on his quest, the pearl-fisher dives in search of goodly pearls. The woman who had lost her silver piece lit a candle, and swept and searched her house diligently till she found it. Seek, says our Lord. If you have lost your peace with God, the blessed consciousness of His presence, power in service, or any other spiritual gift, do not settle down, content to live without it, but seek it diligently until you find. Your heart shall live that seek God. If you have heard of some gift or grace which others possess, and may be equally yours as theirs, seek it. Seek it as men seek for hidden treasure or for goodly pearls, or as the philosophers were wont to seek for the substance which should turn everything into gold, as explorers seek for the secret of the North Pole, or scientists search for the secrets which nature holds back from all but reverent and persevering inquiry. Seek him that maketh the seven stars in Orion, and turneth the shadow of death into the morning. He that seeketh, findeth. If thou criest after knowledge, and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver, and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord, and find the knowledge of God. We may not always find just what we seek but we shall come on something much better and more satisfying. Abraham and the patriarchs declared plainly that they sought a country, but they all died in tents, the shifting memorials of their pilgrimage. The philosophers of the Middle Ages, to whom we have referred, did not find the golden stone, but they laid the foundations of modern chemistry. You may not obtain that special opportunity of blessing others that you have long desired, but in your willingness to take a subordinate position, in your meekness and humility, you will certainly win a moral and spiritual influence incomparably greater. The resolute seeker finds. He starts off to raise crops of golden grain from the brown fields, and as patiently he drives his plough, the metallic chink of the share on metal makes it certain that he has come on treasure trove. 3. Knock we ask for a gift, we seek something we have lost, but we knock for admittance to the house of our friend. 
a door stands between us and the master of the house, which can only be opened from within. Then we knock, at first quietly, and then more vehemently and loudly, till we hear the drawing back of the bolt and bar, and see the door thrown open. We need the gifts of God, and are thankful for the treasures which are to be obtained by earnest, prayerful search. But we should desire, above all, to have face-to-face -face friendship with Himself. Sometimes the door of fellowship stands wide open, and we can enter without let or hindrance. At other times it seems as though God has hidden His face and withdrawn Himself. These are the occasions when we must knock. And how often it has been the experience of the saints that, as they have stood waiting and knocking, the door has been opened as by an invisible hand, and the times of greatest difficulty at the beginning have been those of greatest liberty at the close. To him that knocketh it shall be opened. There is no doubt or hesitation in our Lord's assurance. In another paragraph he speaks of those who shall stand without and knock, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall say, Depart. But that dread parable has nothing to do with the access into the presence of God and the fellowship with God, of which the Master is here treating. Persistency, urgency, the holy violence which will not be denied, are dear to the heart of God, and are certain to win a loving and favorable response. Though the vision tarry, wait for it. It shall come, it shall not tarry. An Analogy Bread and fish were the simple fare of the Galilean peasants whom our Lord addressed on the shores of their beautiful lake, the bread as the necessary staff of life, the fish as an appetizing addition. Little children, in their simplicity, might sometimes mistake a stone for one of the small loaves of the oriental shape and fashion, or a serpent for a fish, but, even though the heart of a human father is fallen and evil, it cannot be supposed for an instant that he would give the child what it asked. His love would at once withhold his hand. He would say, No, little one, the stone is not food. The serpent would sting and poison you. But, see, here is what you want, bread and fish. I cannot give you those. So it often happens that in this mortal life of ours, where the shadows fall so dense and dark, we are obliged to grope in the twilight, we are hungry with immeasurable appetite, and think that this or the other boon will surely satisfy our souls. We clamor for a stone, thinking it to be bread, or cry out for the glittering serpent, supposing it to be a dainty that will titillate our palate. But as the earthly father refused, notwithstanding his weakness and evil, much more will God refuse. No, he says, my child, I cannot, for love's sake, give it you, See, here is bread indeed, and here the fish. Eat, drink, and be satisfied. Again, God sometimes gives things that appear to be stones and serpents, but they turn out to be bread and fish. The mother of St. Augustine prayed to God that he would not suffer her beloved son to go to Rome, because she dreaded the persecutions which were threatening the city. He went, notwithstanding, and it was in Italy that he found Christ. Referring in after years to this incident in his life, he says, What was it, O my God, that she sought of thee with many tears? Was it not that thou wouldst not suffer me to sail for Rome? But thou, in thy deep counsels, and listening to the hinge of her desire, didst disregard the thing which she asked for, 
that thou mightest do in me that which she was ever asking, the conversion of my soul. Do not be surprised if there are placed on your table viands that threaten to break your teeth and disagree with your digestion. Since God has put them there, and he is good, you will find them in the highest degree nutritious. Though they be the reverse of the prophet's vision, bitter to the mouth, they will prove to be wholesome and sweet to the digestion. Or take a third case. Suppose a child in its hunger asks for bread and fish. Its father, though evil, will not tantalize it by giving it something which would defy its power of assimilation. Though he were to suffer the extremities of starvation, he would cheerfully endure them rather than respond thus to his child's artless faith. We may therefore go with large requests to our God, asking for what we need, and asking in the certain faith that he will only give us good things. Each prayer we repeat will be answered only in giving. He will substitute the blessing we would crave if we knew as much as he does of the heart of man. What a comfort it is to know that God gives only good things. What he withholds is good, what he gives is good. What he substitutes in his answer to our petitions is good. Nay, good is not strong enough. He always gives the best. It should be remembered that our God gives not only the necessaries, but the luxuries and comforts of life. The Lord prepared for his hungry friends, exhausted by the labors of the night, not bread alone, but fish. When they got out upon the land, they see a fire of charcoal there, and fish laid thereon and bread. It was as though, in that last breakfast with him, the master desired to teach that in all coming time he would give his faithful disciples the daily supply of their returning wants, together with the warmth of human love, which ministers to the sense of enjoyment as well as to the present need. There is a great consolation in prayer. We can ask for anything and everything we want, we may be sure that no good thing will be withheld from those who walk uprightly, but we may also be sure that God loves us too well to give anything that would hurt us. Probably our lives are meager and impoverished when they might become full of good things because we fail to ask. Notice our Lord's words. How much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Is not the Apostle James right when he says, Ye have not, because ye ask not. That is the one reason. Or, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. That is the second reason. Either not to pray, or to pray from selfish motives, shuts us out of a great amount of divine helpfulness, which otherwise would be ours. Our Lord puts into our hands the key to the vaults in God's bank, it is our fault if all grace does not abound in us, and if we are poor when we might be rich. An Injunction All things, therefore, whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, even so do ye also unto them. With much reason this has been called the golden rule. Gibbon reminds us that, in a negative form, it was in vogue four centuries before the Christian era. But this is not to be wondered at, since Christ was in the world from the first. That was the true light, even the light which lighteth every man, coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. 
but for the positive form of this truth, and for the power by which it can be made operative in our selfish, evil hearts, we are entirely indebted to the teaching and inspiration of Jesus Christ. Translated into common English, this precept may be rendered, Put yourself in another's place. Treat him as you would wish to be treated under similar circumstances. Do not deal with him as you would not wish to be dealt with. The Lord, in effect, goes back to the words which stand at the beginning of the chapter, saying, Judge as you would like to be judged. Measure as you would like it to be measured to you. The principle, of course, as he says, is witnessed by the law and the prophets. We find it stated in the second great commandment, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It is fundamental, underpinning the whole structure of human society. It is equitable, because all men are more nearly on an equality than might be inferred from a consideration of their outward circumstances. It is portable, like the two-foot rule, which the artisan carries in his pocket, for the measurement of any work which he may be called to estimate. The emperor Serevas was so charmed by the excellence of this rule that he ordered a crier to repeat it whenever he had occasion to punish any person, and he caused it to be inscribed on the most notable parts of the palace and on many of the public buildings. But though the maxim has attracted so much attention and admiration, it is powerless to effect any great reform apart from the Holy Spirit. Therefore it is that in the other version of this paragraph, in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, our Lord says, How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? After all, it is only they who have stood under the open sky of Pentecost, who have received their share of that blessed endowment and infilling, which is the right of every believer, but which is too seldom claimed, who can go through the world practicing always the golden rule of love. It is only they who by the Holy Spirit have been brought into living union with Christ, who receive hour by hour the full current of his life, that can go on loving men with the prodigality of affection, tempered, of course, with wisdom and discretion such as avail to fill up to the brim the full measure of the requirements of the golden rule. Let us simply artlessly and earnestly ask our Father here and now to bestow upon us in his fullness this best of all donations, the Holy Spirit. What a royal life this is to which our Master calls us, on the one hand deriving all our needed resources from God, and, on the other hand, therefore, able to be generous and free-handed to men. He is able to make all grace abound towards us, that we, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Too long have we given stones where men asked bread, and serpents where they asked fish. We have pelted men with stones, we have stung them with the poison of asps, and they have turned away from us and our religion with loathing. Henceforth, let us go through life repeating in essence the wonderful miracle of John chapter 6, where out of five barley loaves and two small fishes, broken by the hand of the master, and distributed by the hand of the disciples, vast crowds of hungry people were satisfied. Take your bread and fish from Christ, and then break and give. Break and give. There will always be twelve baskets full of fragments left for your personal need. End of chapter 19